Well, in the sports world, there's, there's this constant debate that revolves around greatness, right? Uh, decade after decade after decade, this debate has, re, has been raged, right? Who's the greatest? Is there one athlete that stands above the rest? Can that even be known? Can it be ever determined? If not, who then is the greatest within their own field of competition? Right? So is it, is it Pele in the world of soccer? Is it Roger Federer in the world of tennis? Well, what about Michael Phelps and Carl Lewis and Tom Brady and Walter Payton, Serena Williams, Babe Ruth, Jack Nicklaus, or Michael Jordan? Those, those obsessed with sports are typically also obsessed with arguing about who they believe is the greatest and who stands above the rest that leaves everyone else in their shadow. Now, for, for many in this room that aren't sports obsessed, the thought might be, can we stop having that debate? Like, who really cares? Can we please stop having the same debate over and over and over again? But the, the debate rages because in a world filled with, with athletes playing at the top of their game, identifying who is the best of the best actually helps create kind of a standard for greatness. It's, it's almost like it's a way to, to measure it and then compare everyone else to it. For some, it might be also so they can study and focus on whoever lands at the top so as to better understand the game itself. In the text that we just heard read this morning, we see one of the scribes coming to Jesus asking about greatness. Specifically, which, which of the commands of God was the greatest? Which one, which one, Jesus, rises to the top that should really have our focus? That's what we see in verse 28, right? One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, heard Jesus disputing with, with, with all the other religious leaders. Again, remember what's happening in, in Mark 12. He's having debate after debate, argument after argument with all these religious leaders coming up trying to, to trip him up. The scribe here, I don't believe, is trying to trip him up. I think he's genuinely curious. And, and, and this is why we see in verse 28, when the scribe sees that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. I don't think he was trying to trip him up. I think he saw Jesus answering all these, these, these shots coming at him well, knocking them out of the park, so to speak. And the scribe's like, I've got a question I really would like an answer to. You seem to be in, in touch with God. What's, what's the most important commandment of all? Now, it's not surprising that a, that a scribe asked this question. A scribe was someone that was, that was well-versed in Jewish law. A scribe was an expert in it, a teacher of it. A scribe knew the law backwards and, and forwards. And so a scribe, they knew because they had worked through the law of God in their studies and in the scriptures and, and, and along with all the Pharisees, they had classified all of the different commands that, that they found in scripture. And so they knew, this scribe knew that there were roughly 613 different commands given by God. Right? So I'll say that word again, 613 a lot of times our minds, when we think of the law of God, the commands of God, we go to the Ten Commandments, right? Ten, right? We go to Exodus 20, and then you can read through those ten, and several years ago, I, we took a summer, we walked through the Ten Commandments, and the goal at the very beginning of that summer was, I said, I'm going to show us each and every week how we fall short of every one of these Ten Commandments. So we can go to even the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and, and think that's a lot, that that's a lot to, to bear, that's a lot to handle, but overall, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, there's over 613 different laws, different commands given by which God's people were to live their lives. This was the world then in which the, the scribe lived. And the Jewish mind believed that in order to garner God's love and, 
acceptance and, and blessing, they, they needed to be obedient to the law. They need to live the law out perfectly. But, but they look at 613 laws to, commit, to, to obey. So, so do you feel the sense of, of weightiness that the scribe was feeling? The law, which was he was an expert in, was, was crushing him. And so he comes to Jesus, seeing that he answers the religious leaders well, and he's coming to Jesus looking for, for guidance. Help me, Jesus, with a, with a conundrum, with a question, with a problem I have. There's 613 different laws. I know them all. But surely, Jesus, there's, there's one that is most important. Surely there's one that, that rises to the top of all of them. Surely there's one law that I can, I can really center my life around that one to gain and garner God's acceptance and blessing. So, Jesus, what is it? What's the greatest commandment? begins to make more sense now why he would ask this question, which one is the greatest? See, in, in reality, you know what he was asking. He, he's trying to figure out, Jesus, what's the minimum requirement for getting into heaven? Jesus, help me, help me whittle this Mount Everest of laws that I, I can't climb. Help me whittle it down to, to this little hill that I actually can climb. What is it? That's what he's asking. In the end, the question the scribe asks is a question really all human beings ask. What do I need to do to achieve salvation? What do I need to do to achieve salvation? Even the person who doesn't believe in God still will ask similar questions, right? Such as, what do, what do I need to do for my life to matter? Have you ever thought that? How much do I need, how much do I need to, to give to charity? How 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 much do I need to serve my community or love my family? How do I do that enough? What is enough for my life to mean something? You see, human beings are going to wrestle with the same question. When we boil everything down, what, what really actually remains? What matters so that my life will matter? Even for the believer, we're, we're tempted to believe and drift into this type of thinking as well. We're tempted to believe that, that our acceptance from God is somehow gained by our acts of self-righteousness. So, so maybe for the believers in here, we, we sometimes maybe will wrestle with these questions. So we, we know we should, quote-unquote, go to church, right? But have you ever wrestled with how often? How many Sundays in a month is enough? Is it three out of four? What if I miss a few? What, what then? Uh, how many ministries should I, should I serve in? Okay, man, they're needing help in Calvary Kids. Okay, I'm already involved in like four other ministries. Should I jump in that? Do I need to do that too so that, so that I'm looking as the, the part of a good Christian? Right? How many ministries should I serve? And what if I can't join a community group or go on a mission trip this year? What if I don't get through my Bible reading plan this year? How do I make this up? Do, see, these are things that we'll wrestle with. What, what if I'm not doing enough? Do you see how even we can be drawn into the thinking that our acceptance with God is based on our performance. And then with so many good things that are before us that, that we could do, then it's like, well, what, what should I do? Is it okay to say no to something? I need help with kids' ministry. I'm saying no to kids? Right? Like, do, do you see this wrestling that we can even walk through? Well, surely God will love me more if I do this. Now, this isn't an excuse to, to be lazy or to, to be idle in our pursuit of holiness. But what the scribe is misunderstanding and what we so often will misunderstand is the nature and the purpose of the law itself. That the law was actually given, was meant to reveal our need for a Savior. 
that the law was meant to, to, to reveal to you and me, you are not the Savior. You cannot do this, right? You need someone else. But, but also, Jesus, as he's tackling this here with the scribe and tackling the question he's asking, he's actually showing this, this scribe that you're, you're misunderstanding the nature and the purpose of the law. That, that the law is actually to be, you're seeing scribe, you're seeing this law as something that's crushing and, and oppressive. But, but if you see it rightly, you're going to see that the law is actually meant to be lived out of love and delight, not duty, not this, oh, I've got to do all of this, all of this, 613, I've got to do all of this, which then will turn to, well, what, what's the minimum, right? What's the minimum I have to do? See, in order for us to shift from, from duty to delight, which is what the, the law is really about, then we, we need to dig into Jesus' response to the scribe. See, Jesus is going to do two things. And I love how Tim Keller has defined this. I'm using his terminology here, but he's going he's to redefine the, the content of law-keeping, and he's going to redefine for the scribe the, the motive of law-keeping. So let's look at first redefining the content of law-keeping, which is what Jesus is doing. Meaning, what, what is the law really after in us? So, so keep in mind, Jesus is speaking into a, a highly moral culture, highly moral context. He's speaking to a, a group of people who highly value the law of God. And they highly value, at the same time, their sense of morality as a way that they believe it will justify them before God. And so the question that is posed to Jesus by this scribe, which, which of all these commands is most important? Of all the 600 commands, what, which one do I need to obey so that God will accept me? So I will be moral enough to say I'm obedient to really what matters in the law. And so Jesus responds starting in verse 29. Well, what's he say? He says, he answered, the, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, so notice, notice Jesus drawing them in. Right? He says, okay, the most important is, right? can, you, can you almost see everyone kind of leaning in? Can you, can you hear kind of the hush coming over the crowd. Again, remember, this is a, a, a Jewish context. This is a people who know that there's hundreds of laws, feels the, the weight of them. And so Jesus says, okay, yeah, the most important is, there is one? What, what's he going to say? Is there, is there actually really only one that's greatest? That, that's all I really need to do, and I can kind of brush away the rest? He, he draws them in. See, most theologians here believe that the people here were expecting him to, to go to the Ten Commandments and pick one of those. Maybe, maybe he was going to say, okay, most important, don't murder. Don't murder anyone. Don't, don't lie. That's, that's important. Or perhaps maybe they're expecting him to say, honor your father and your mother. But, but Jesus doesn't do that, does he? he? He doesn't go to Exodus and say, this one, this is the one that you really need to hold, hold tight to. This one is the grace. This one's most important. Don't, don't worry about all the rest. Like, I mean, if you can get to them, great. If not, no biggie. But here's the one really to, to, to key in on. Can you imagine if he did that? Right? So, so if he would have said, okay, here's the most important is honor your parents. It's the most important of all. Now, if you can try not to lie and steal and murder anyone, that'd be great too. 
but, but don't worry about those. Just honor your parents. Well, what's he do? He doesn't do that, does he? He goes actually to two Mosaic passages. One is found in Deuteronomy 6, a passage they would have been well, well versed in, and the other in Leviticus 19. In, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, he, he's quoting Moses, quoting here, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He goes to Leviticus 19 as well and says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a, a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the question remains or is posed here, why does he go there? Why there? Remember, Jesus is defining the content of the law for this scribe. He, what is the law after? Why was it given? And what is it based upon according to what Jesus says in Deuteronomy and Leviticus? What's the law after? It's after love. It's after love. Tim Keller says, until we understand that everything in the law is about love, and that love is only given definition by the law, you don't understand what the law is really after. It's not said here in Mark's gospel, but the underlying context that we, that we see and pick up on, and it's recorded actually in Matthew's gospel, is that Matthew records Jesus saying to the scribe after he took them to uh, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, he, he says this as well in Matthew twenty two fourteen. Matthew records him saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Meaning every law, every command of God hangs on these two, love. Love for God, which then turns into love for your neighbor. How? How does that happen? How, how does that make sense? Well, take, take the command. Let's go with Ten Commandments. Take the command, don't steal. Don't steal. How is that command actually about love? It's actually a negative command. Don't do something. That's a negative command. So how is that command actually turned into the positive, which is about love? Well, that command can actually only truly be fulfilled and lived when we desire to live kindly and generously with our neighbor. To not take what, that, what does not belong to us, but belongs to them. By loving our neighbor, how about, how about the command, don't commit adultery? Right? Well, that command is, is really after love for one's spouse. Right? Or what about the command, don't have any other gods before the, the one true God? Well, obviously, we can hear that command and see that it's a command that draws us to have love and delight in our Creator. See, we live out. Jesus is trying to draw the scribe to this, understand that you're misunderstanding the nature and the purpose of the law itself. That we live out and fulfill the law when we understand that it's about love for God first, which then flows to love for our neighbor who is made in the image of God. So the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, were, were, they were only focused on making sure they obeyed the letter of the law, like uh, obeyed what it actually said. So, okay, don't murder. They'll take that command. They'll say, okay, I won't murder anyone. I won't murder anyone, but I do hate a lot of people. I do hate a lot of people, and I'd love to see them out of the picture. I despise you, but I'm not murdering you. And so they look at it and say, I'm obeying the letter of the law. Or don't commit adultery. Okay, I won't sleep with any other woman, but I will lust after them. See, in their minds and in our minds, so often the human heart, that's as far as we go with the law. Well, that's what it says. I didn't do it. That's what we believe is what it means to fulfill it. But Jesus himself turns that completely upside down and, and rocks their world and ours as well. Keep your finger in, in Gospel of Mark and turn back at Gospel to Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. 
In Matthew 5, you see Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the sermon, he, he addresses, again, even the purpose and the content of the law. And he, he, shows, he shows them as he's speaking, as he's preaching, what the law is really after in us. And we see it affirmed again here in Mark 12. So in Matthew 5, Jesus takes a few different commands that, that they would have been well, well aware of. And so Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus, he addresses the command of, of, of not murdering anyone, right? You've heard that it was said to those of old, to, to your forefathers, your ancestors, to uh, God's people, Israel, in Exodus 20, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But here we go. I, I say to you, this is where he's going to explain the, the nature of that command itself and the fulfillment of it and how, it, how it's seen. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do, do you see where he's drawn even them here? Like, understand the nature and the content of the law. It's not about just obeying the letter of it to fulfill it. Just understand it's about love. And so if you can say, I didn't kill anybody, but if you hate, you're not, you're not walking in love for God and love for neighbor, and so you are not fulfilling the law, and you'll be guilty. You're guilty of violating it. Or jump down to verse 27. He takes the command of adultery. He says the same thing. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so listen, you can say, I haven't, I haven't slept with her. I haven't committed a physical act of adultery, but man, I think about her all the time. I play scenarios in my mind, but I haven't done anything on that. And Jesus says, you're guilty because you're missing the, the purpose of the law itself. You have failed to love God and love neighbor. You're guilty of it. See, what's the underlying context here when Jesus says, but, but I say to you? He's saying, you, you, know, you all know the wording of the law, but you don't know the purpose of the law. And you don't really know what it means to fulfill it. It's fulfilled when, when it's lived out of a heart of love for God and for neighbor. Here, here's, here's what this means, and here's why, this, why, why we should take notice of this. Like you, you can be following, just like the Pharisees were so good at doing. You, you can be following the letter of the law and still not be fulfilling the law. You might think that you have as many I's dotted and T's crossed as you can, but if you are a difficult person to be around, if you are an unloving person, a harsh person, a selfish person, a greedy person, a lustful person, then Jesus would clearly say from, from God's word, you're failing to obey the law. You're guilty. You're guilty of violating it. And you don't understand what the law is after in you. And in that improper mindset, if we go to just obedience of the letter of it, and that by obedience of whatever it is, that will garner acceptance and love and salvation, the law will only become more of a crushing weight to you because you're going to continue to see the, the commands piling up higher and higher and higher. 613, the scribe would look at and say, it's breaking me. I can't do this. And so that's when you'll become like this scribe. Is, is there just one? Give me just one that I can focus on so that God will accept me. So see, Jesus ultimately shows that the, the law is after love, but he goes on to, to, to say this as well. He's going to redefine, though, the motive of law-keeping. So we looked at the content, but what's the motive, though, of law-keeping? They go hand in hand. Basically, the question is, what, what drives us to obey? 
the, the religious leader's motivation for law-keeping was God's acceptance, right? They thought, they thought God will bless them the more they obey. And when that's the motivation, you can see, you can see why then th- th- this guy's coming to Jesus looking to wh- whittle it down. How will we whittle down this massive mountain of laws to something that's more achievable? But what's Jesus saying is teaching? What's our motivation for law-keeping? Again, it's love. Love for God. Right? Delight in God. Ever-increasing joy in the person of God. Look at the text again. He, he begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, what's known as the, the Shema. It's the most fundamental expression of Jewish faith in the, in the world. Jewish people quote the Shema every morning and every evening. They remind themselves that the Lord, our God, he is one. Jesus is saying here as he goes into this explanation here that, that, that God, the one true God, he's your delight, right? He's, he's where your heart is to be, your mind is to be set on him. He's your joy. He's our treasure, our true love. He is the one true Lord. And we are to love God, he goes on, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might and all of our strength. I've spent the last year uh, in my seminary studies going through um, the Greek language. That was pretty much what all last year was, was studying the Greek language. Uh, so, so what I decided to do this past week was, let's do a deep dive study. I want to do a deep dive study on the word all. Word all in the Greek. What's this really? What's, let's unpack this. Let's dig into this. What's the word all mean? So it's, it's the word halas. Right? It's what the word is. And after all my study of this word in the original languages, here's what all means. It means all. Means all. Jesus is saying we're to love God with our whole being, all of us, right? Our heart, he says, which represents the, a person's inner thoughts and, and emotions. Our, our soul here speaks to the, the spirit, our, our, our psyche, the, the self conscious life, right? Like who we are. The mind speaks to our intelligence and to our, our reason. Strength speaks even to our physical ability, maybe even perhaps our will, right? The, the every aspect about who we are is to be madly, deeply in love with our God. Every part of us is to be devoted and in love with our great God and Savior. And only when love for and delight in God is the motivating factor for our obedience will the law actually become sweet to us. Because no longer are we living in such a way to get something from God. Do you, do you see that the religious leaders are trying to get something from God through their actions, through their law-keeping, trying to garner acceptance, garner blessing, garner um, salvation, right? They're trying to get something. That is not love. Love is not taking. Love is giving, right? And so when, when all of a sudden the motivating factor becomes giving of ourselves, Right? Then all of a sudden, the law becomes freeing. Right? Love is about giving of ourselves. Attempting to keep the law so that God will accept you will actually only turn the law into a destructive force in your life. It'll destroy you because you'll, you'll very quickly see your inability to obey and follow the law perfectly. And then when, when, when obedience to the law then is motivated by what you can get in return, it's going to only further nurture pride. And, and selfishness, fear, and evil within you because all that you do is, is not for the good and the glory of God and the joy of others, which is what love is, the giving. It's about you, what I can get in return. 
What Jesus is doing here with the scribe is saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. It's not about trying to whittle down the commands to something that's achievable. Even if, even if there was only one command to obey, you're not going to be able to do that either. Right? I, I, could, I could give you one, and you're going to break it today. Like you, you're not going to still be able to do it, even if we whittle it down to the, the, the slightest, littlest little thing. There's, stop trying to look for ways to get around it. He's saying your motivation and understanding of the purpose of the law is incorrect from the very beginning. Let me show you and invite you in to what the law is about, and only then will you find delight and joy and freedom that you're actually looking for. See, what happens next in this interaction is pretty remarkable. Look at, look at the scribe's response in verse 32. It says, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that, that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, my last little point here, I just titled, I can't think of a better title, so I just titled Getting There. He's getting there. You can hear, the, you can hear in his, his response the wheels beginning to turn in his mind that he's, he's beginning to see and to, to understand. He's saying, Jesus, what, what you're saying makes sense. What you're saying, that, that's right. It may, remember, his world has all been about strict adherence to the law. And even with what he knows, he, he, he knows he falls short. He knows there needs, to be, there needs to be something more. You see, he was looking instead to Jesus as the Savior. He was looking like, can we just slim this down? But, but something that Jesus is saying is starting to get him to think, this is, I've got to think differently about this. He, he's telling that something's missing. You can almost hear or see like a, a light bulb begin to, to dim, turn on, brighten a little bit. And that's when he makes this remarkable statement. Verse 33 says, love for God and for neighbor exceeds any sacrifice that I can give. What's, what's he mean when he says that? See, he's, he's seeing what the law requires of him. He knows it. He's a scribe. He's an expert in it. He's seeing all of a sudden what the law requires of him is, is more, though. It's more than any sacrifice he could ever make. Like, like the law requires perfection. And, and Jesus just said the law is about love for God. And, and love for neighbor as oneself. And so he's coming face to face now with this reality that he is not perfectly loving. He's not obeying the law in that way. So, so he came to Jesus with a problem. He's almost coming away with more, like seeing how he's failing at even more of the law. He's seeing that he's, he's not as generous as he ought to be. He's self-centered, right? The law is about me and what I can get from God. So so then he looks at the sacrificial system, which he knew was, okay, that's what atones for our, our, our shortcomings. But he's saying, basically, the, the, I, I can't make enough sacrifices to atone for, for all my shortcomings. Like, I can't do enough over here to overcome all the things I'm doing bad over here. I can't sacrifice enough at the temple to atone for my depravity. He, he wanted Jesus to whittle down the mountain of commands and ended up seeing that, that he was misunderstanding the nature and the motivation for the law this, this entire time. And so you hear in his words that he's, he's starting to see, he's starting to understand, he's, he's getting there. He's getting there to understand who God is and what the law is actually about, which is why Jesus says in verse 34, you're not far, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from there. 
the beginning of a fruitful and healthy relationship with, with God begins with love and delight for Him. Begins with the acknowledgement that, that He's holy and glorious and majestic and beautiful and lovely. All the things that we've sung about all this morning, like this true of Him. And, and even infinitely more true than what our minds can even comprehend. Which then results in seeing you for who you and I truly are. We are unholy Rebellious, treasonous, broken, sinful. We're unable. Please hear this. You are unable. I am unable to perform in any way which would ever merit God's approval or acceptance of you. Which then should then lead us to the cross. Because, because at that point, until that point, we're just looking inwardly. What can I do? But until when we grasp and understand, nothing I can do. There is nothing I can do. That our knee-jerk next response should be, is there someone else? It's that, that's a cross. We, we go to Christ, which then stirs up repentance in our hearts and turning, turning from who I was, denying myself. Right? If we want to be accepted by God, then we need to deny ourselves and cling to Jesus as Savior. And the more than that, we rest in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that in our brokenness and in our depravity and in our shortcomings and in our sinfulness and rebelliousness and treasonous nature, like, like he came and died for us and loved us. Like and, and through faith in him, we're loved and we're accepted and adopted into the family of God. Like we're, that we're saved through no work, nothing that I've done, but in spite of myself, I'm, I'm accepted. Not through law keeping, but, but, through, but through his perfect life, his sinless life. Jesus who obeyed the law, all 613 commands, he, he obeyed them perfectly lived them flawlessly for us, did what we could not do, loved God perfectly, loved God just as we are called to but so often fall short of. It was Jesus who did what we cannot do and gives to us through simple faith alone in him. Freedom, salvation, acceptance. Only then we come there to an understanding of the gospel, what truly is, will love begin to be stirred up within us. This is a great God. There's no one else like him which then will translate into our love for neighbor. Come, come see this God. It'll it'll call us to want to invite our neighbors into our homes, to build those bridges, build those relationships. It'll stir us to want to go and be a sent people, to say, come here. This is who this God is. See, when we're madly in love with someone, we share that, don't we? That's what Jesus is talking about. When you are in love with God, when he's the delight of your soul, it's a delight then to obey him. It's freeing to obey him. And so understand the content of the law itself and what motivates you to move forward. The scribe here, he was was getting there. Now, whether or not he he believed, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, but he was getting close. The question for you then to hear this morning is, where are you in the journey? Where are you in the journey? Are you a follower of Jesus, but but still struggling and wrestling with thinking that it's, it's your obedience that, that maintains God's love and acceptance of you, right? So again, if you're kind of like, well, I'm here 80% of the year, so that, I mean, good. You, like, if, if that's where your mind goes, again, you're misunderstanding the nature of what God calls us to. It's not about what you do and perform. It's, it's what he has done for you. And so is, is that where you are? If, if so, r- repent of that and, and then rest, rest in God's love. Right? That, that then frees you then to obey. Remember what we said, this is not an excuse to laziness and idleness. 
But no, the more actually I believe that we understand the gospel and the more that we beat it into our heads, into the heads of others, and we live this out, the more that we delight to obey. The more we delight in, in, in pursuing holiness, which is what Scripture calls us to. And so let, let love for God be what motivates your obedience to love and serve one another, to love neighbor as oneself. But maybe you're here and you're, the, you're like the scribe. Maybe you're near Maybe you're near the kingdom of God. Now, I think it's, it's important to say just because he was near didn't mean he was in. Being near, you can be with an inch of heaven, I've heard it said, but still spending eternity in hell, right? And so, so where, where are you? And are you near the kingdom of God, like Jesus said? Meaning you're, you're, not, you're not quite there, but maybe I'm starting to understand this. I'm starting to understand the message of the gospel and the person of Jesus. That, that okay, my acceptance by God is... is is, is my salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, okay? It's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, right? Take yourself out of the picture. You are not in that phrase, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. St- stop inserting yourself into what only God can do. Only God can save. Only Christ can make the perfect sacrifice, which completely atones for all of your sin, both past, present, and future. And so turn to him in faith and believe. Follow him and then love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, knowing that when you fall short and all those things, you might be thinking, okay, am I supposed to get to a, a, a time of perfection in that? Like, no, I mean, I'll be the first one to admit, I do not always love the Lord our God, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the beauty of the gospel is that when I fall short, I don't run to try and do a bunch of good works of self-righteousness to, to come out of the shadows. You, you cool with me again, God? But like the, the gospel is, no, when I fall short, I run to the cross. And, and what do I find there? Acceptance, right? Acceptance, salvation, forgiveness, which then frees me to say, okay, God, help me to continue to love you as you've called me to love you. Right? He's beautiful and worthy of our affection, is he not? In this new year, church, let's look for ways to continually stir your affections for him. Let's pray.